of the, the Zoom virtual environment. Um, you know, I think everybody's ready for this to be over. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start sharing my screen. Okay. So um, right at 12, Daniel, uh, everybody else will go dark and then we'll start bringing people in from the waiting room to the main room. Um, once that happens, you know, we'll wait a couple of beats and then Peg will take down the share screen and then I'll go. Okay, and then I should share my screen after you introduce me? Yep. Okay, sounds good. And we should, you should probably go silent now as well. Welcome everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to another online edition of the OHC's regular work in progress talks, presentations given by faculty and graduate students who are current research fellows at the Oregon Humanities Center about their research projects. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the uh, closed captioning function of Zoom, you can activate captions using the live transcript option. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. Before introducing today's speaker, I also wanted to share news of an upcoming lecture sponsored by the Oregon Humanities Center and the University of Oregon's Physics Department. Brown University physicist and president of the National Society of Black Physicists, Stefan Alexander, will give a talk titled, What a Scientist Learned from Jazz About Innovation on Thursday, April 22nd at 4 p.m. live via Zoom. That's Pacific time. You can register for that lecture through the OHC's website at ohc.uoregon.edu. I'm pleased now to introduce our speaker for today, Daniel Gomez Steinhardt, Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at the University of Oregon. He is a 2020-2021 OHC Faculty Research Fellow. Professor Steinhardt's interests lie in the art and industry of cinema and media. His research and teaching focuses on global Hollywood, production studies, film aesthetics, independent film, and contemporary international art cinema. Steinhardt's first book, Runaway Hollywood, Internationalizing Postwar Production and Locations uh, Shooting, published by the University of California Press in 2019, examines how Hollywood created a globalized production industry from the late 40s to the early 60s, and how Hollywood filmmakers confronted the challenges of foreign location shooting. Steinhardt's follow-up book project studies the history of Hollywood productions in Mexico from the early 40s to the late 60s. His work in progress talk, a part of that book project, is titled Cross-Border Hollywood, Excavating the Production of Catch-22 in Mexico. Welcome, Daniel. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Paul. Um, so let me share my screen. Um, so uh, first, I just want to give a big thanks to the Oregon Humanities Center uh, for its support. Um, and I want to thank Paul, uh, Jenna, Melissa, Peg, uh, and the rest of the staff, as well as the advisory board um, for supporting my research. Um, you know, one year into the pandemic, uh, it's a real luxury to be able to uh, have the time and just the psychic space to be able to focus on, on research. Um, but I'll admit that, you know, this has also been a challenge uh, working on a book project that relies on archival research when I haven't been able to go to an archive um, in, in about two years. It was, I think, two summers ago that I, I last did research in an archive. Um, but I tend to sort of be a pack rat when I go to archives. I will gather a bunch of materials, file them away, and I won't look at them until I start writing. So this has actually been a good chance to just 
figure out what I do have, what I can do with it, uh, and then also uh, to try to do research uh, remotely. So uh, I hope that some of today's talk um, will, will reflect that work. Um, and, uh, and, and just to clarify, I know there's maybe a couple different titles. Uh, today's uh, talk uh, is uh, excavating the production of Catch-22 uh, in Mexico. And, and the, the larger book is, is looking uh, really at Hollywood productions in, in Mexico. So um, with that said, um, I wanna start out with this image. Um, <clears throat> along the Mexican coast of the Gulf of California, just north of the port town of Guaymas lies a swath of land with the sea on one side and mountains on the other. Down on the ground, a neglected road bisects the stark desert landscape of dirt and sage plants. This is the traditional indigenous homeland of the Yaqui people. If we zoom back out a bit, we see that this road is part of a larger network of roadways and a long cement strip. These are the remains not of a derelict civic project, but of a movie set, the Paramount production of Catch-22, which was filmed in 1969. The story behind these cinematic ruins is the tale of how a Hollywood film company went to Mexico to undertake a multi-million dollar motion picture. The production, which failed commercially, is also something of a cautionary tale. Coming at the end of the 1960s, uh, Catch-22 marked nearly two and a half decades of Hollywood's post-war productions in Mexico, which became one of the most active centers for Hollywood filmmaking outside the United States. <laughs> So why was Mexico such an attractive location to Hollywood? There was the geographic proximity to Los Angeles, a skilled Mexican workforce, lower production costs, and a diversity of landscapes. There was also the support of an infrastructure that uh, Hollywood had been uh, investing in since World War II, uh, namely Estudios Churubusco, which Hollywood studio RKO and some US industrialists had an important role in building. So all of these were compelling reasons uh, for Hollywood movie producers to uh, export production to Mexico. And the subject of my uh, current uh, book project, um, which is uh, tentatively titled Cross-Border Hollywood Production Politics and Practices in Mexico, uh, explores these reasons and also how Hollywood was able to um, export production to Mexico from 1945 to 1970. So I'm gonna take a little detour from uh, Catch-22 to talk about the inspiration for this book, um, give you a brief overview of the project, and then I will come back to, uh, to Catch-22. So uh, uh, Cross-Border Hollywood is really a follow-up to my first book, uh, Runaway Hollywood. Uh, and this first book focused on the period 1948 to 1962, when Hollywood was really building up its global production operation. And for this book, I focused on uh, the United Kingdom, uh, France, and Italy. And I was pursuing a series of research questions, but one of the basic research questions I was interested in is how many films how many Hollywood films were shot abroad? And so to try to figure this out, uh, I looked to the American Film Institute catalog, which is a database of uh, feature films. And I discovered that from 1948 to 1962, uh, Hollywood companies released 563 uh, films where some portion of principal photography was done uh, abroad. And so even though this is a provisional count, it certainly points to a robust trend. And these findings also show that uh, the productions were far-reaching geographically. Um, certainly a lot of productions were done in the United Kingdom, France, and Italy, which is why I focused on those, uh, those locations. Uh, but also you had a lot of productions done in uh, Japan, Kenya, and territories like um, Puerto Rico. Uh, and then, you know, dozens of other countries where Hollywood films were shot uh, were in the single digits. Um, and so one thing that certainly stood out to me was Mexico, which for this period uh, hosted 76 Hollywood productions. 
And so I was interested in, in why this was. So for this new project, I've expanded the timeline uh, or the time frame from 1945 to 1970, and I've gone back to the American Film Institute catalog to determine that Hollywood filmed roughly 135 English language movies in Mexico from Republic's Song of Mexico in 1945 to Paramount Studios' Catch-22 in 1970. So in exploring this period, um, I have broken this book up into four sections based around four broad themes. And so let me briefly go through these different sections. So uh, the first section looks at uh, how Hollywood exported production to Mexico. And it really picks up at a moment in time when uh, Hollywood pivoted from this uh, diplomatic wartime alliance that it had with Mexico, partly shaped by the good neighbor policy, into a production plan. And so I look at some of the key players, the key studio facilities, and craft practices that really facilitated this move to Mexico. The second section looks at how the Mexican film industry uh, handled this influx of Hollywood studios through a mixture of cooperation and uh, resistance. So I look at some um, key Mexican collaborators like technicians who were able to synthesize uh, Mexican and Hollywood styles. Um, I also considered the role of Mexican unions who tried to enforce uh, rules on um, Hollywood productions. I also considered the role of Mexican censors who were often on the sets of Hollywood productions to supervise uh, the depiction of uh, Mexico and Mexicans. The third section looks at how Hollywood unions voiced some of their most fervent outcries against the offshoring of production uh, to Mexico. And this was in part because some of these films were shot in Mexico, but set in the United States, which kind of just revealed to unions that uh, Hollywood was going to Mexico primarily for financial reasons. Uh, in the end, these protests met with mixed results, but I think that these runaway productions really helped establish Mexico as this kind of malleable space that could meet the needs of um, Hollywood filmmakers. So this leads to the fourth and final section, uh, the infrastructure of production, which looks at how Hollywood's operations in Mexico dovetailed with Mexico's goals of developing infrastructure. Um, and I'm looking at three locations, uh, the coastal city of Puerto Vallarta, uh, the state of Durango, and the port city of Guaymas. So I conclude the book with a case study of Catch-22 to understand how Paramount's uh, need to transform this location in Guaymas into this massive set um, also met the local needs to build up infrastructure. Um, and as I hope to show, there are some e ecological ramifications um, to those decisions. Um, so let me share some of the conceptual frameworks I'm, I'm trying to think through for this section on uh, infrastructure. Uh, in media studies, I think there's been this recent um, material turn to thinking about the infrastructure that supports the distribution of media. So examining things like server farms or undersea cable networks. Uh, and I find that this work very inspiring for looking at um, the infrastructure in my book, I'm interested not so much in the infrastructure that facilitates the distribution of media, but infrastructure that supports the production of media. Uh, and in particular, I'm interested in things like how construction and transportation networks are central to production work um, in terms of logistics, but also in terms of uh, aesthetics. The other thing I've been thinking about is uh, scale. Um, and I think this is an opportunity to think about the scale of uh, a global production process. 
So when Hollywood went abroad, it worked on a variety of scales, a transnational scale, a national scale, a local scale. I think it's also scalable in terms of its interactions with foreign private enterprises, uh, US multinational uh, enterprises abroad, and state-supported foreign enterprises. So on a production like Catch-22, um, this looks like uh, how Catch-22 was relying on the U.S.-Mexico Transborder Railway. Uh, it was getting support from the Mexican Department uh, of Defense. Uh, it was working with the mayor of Guaymas. It was relying on a construction company, Constructora Ora. Um, it was also looking to the multinational company DuPont and its explosives factories. Uh, and is, it was also coordinating with Estudios Churubusco in Mexico City, which at this point was uh, state run. And in thinking about scale, I want to engage with what uh, Laura Isabel Serna calls, quote, the goal of pushing against the entrenched habit of privileging the nation. So we understand how cinema moved historically across a variety of geographical scales. So in thinking about uh, some of these frameworks, I want to return to uh, Catch-22, uh, which again uh, is the case study that, that ends my book. And I'm still researching this book, uh, and I'm just starting to write it. And I know maybe it's a little unorthodox to start at the end, but um, I'm hoping that by starting at the end, I will have kind of a sense of where the uh, narrative tra trajectory of the book is going. So, okay, I know that was a long way to walk uh, back to Catch-22, but um, let me go back to this case study. So Catch-22, uh, which was filmed in Guaymas, Rome, and Paramount's Hollywood Studios, exemplifies the kind of global productions that Hollywood had been investing in since the end of World War II. The movie also illustrates the benefits that South of the Border Productions could bring to both U.S. and Mexican interests, those though those benefits were far from mutual. So with this case study of Catch-22, I argue that Hollywood's global, global power, like uh, US state power, worked on a variety of levels. On a broad level, Hollywood studios sought to minimize labor costs and maximize production values. On a practical level, Hollywood filmmakers adapted to the vested interests of Mexican officials, especially in terms of building up of infrastructure as long as those studio goals of savings and production values were met. The case of Catch-22 also reveals the ways that Hollywood could exploit longstanding U.S. investments in trade, uh, transportation, politics, and business in Mexico. Uh, in effect, Hollywood's global power is built on U.S. power. Published in 1962, uh, Joseph Heller's World War II novel, Catch-22, follows US Captain John Yossarian, a B-25 bombardier. Most of the story is set on a US Air Force base on the Mediterranean island of Pianosa. The independent uh, film and television company Filmways purchased the rights to Catch-22 and established the project at Paramount Studios with Mike Nichols set to direct. And at this point, uh, Mike Nichols was coming off of the success of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and he was about to release The Graduate, which would go on to become a big hit. In 1968, Nichols traveled to Italy to scout locations along with production designer Richard Silbert and Filmways producer uh, John Cowley. They visited uh, Rome, Corsica, Sardinia, and Sicily in search of a locale that could replicate the novel's airbase setting with a landing strip leading out to the sea and mountains set several miles back. But the survey team was unable to find a locale that was undeveloped enough to replicate a Mediterranean landscape of the early 1940s. Too many factories and oil dumps, complained production designer Silbert. The production would end up using authentic locations in Rome and uh, also sets at nearby Dino De Laurentiis studio. But if the filmmakers needed to build an airbase from scratch, they required a location closer to Hollywood. It was on a location scout in Mexico that Silbert and producer John Cowley found the ideal locale north of Guaymas, 
a dry Mediterranean-like landscape with the sea on one side and mountains set two miles back. Using Mexico as a stand-in for another location followed one option for Hollywood's global productions. But the decision risked angering Hollywood unions, which would call such films runaway productions for evading the employment of US workers to cut costs. As I mentioned, some of Hollywood unions most impassioned protests against the offshoring of production arose with films such as Sitting Bull and Daniel Boone Trailblazer, which were shot in Mexico, but set in the United States. For unions, these productions were barefaced attempts to cash in on the less expensive labor in neighboring Mexico. With Catch-22, the protest was muted. Producers could justify shooting in Rome by appealing to notions of authenticity, even though the production did uh, rely on studio work at the Dino De Laurenta studio. Uh, they could appease Hollywood unions by filming front projection process shots at Paramount Studios and relying on local uh, crews. They could also send many Hollywood crew members to Mexico to balance out the Mexican crew and fulfill long-running union demands to take more Hollywood personnel abroad. Moreover, the debates about runaway productions had lost momentum by the 1960s, becoming really a given for how most productions were conducted. In fact, Catch-22's producer Martin Ransohoff openly referred to films like Catch-22 not as runaway productions, but chase-away films, suggesting that producers were being chased out of Los Angeles uh, due to prohibitive expenses. In Guaymas, the film's producers found not only lower costs, but also a location that was malleable. While Hollywood had gone to overseas locations for authenticity, filmmakers were increasingly attracted to stand-in spaces. As Ben Goldsmith and the late Tom O'Regan suggest, quote, the built and natural environment of a place are valued as much for what they can stand in for, what they can be bent, reshaped to represent as they are valued for themselves. This impulse to apply a kind of studio logic to real places had always existed in cinema with some ecological ramifications. And to illustrate this point, uh, I want to show you a clip from Buster Keaton's of The General, which might be familiar to some of you because it was shot um, here in Oregon. In describing the world building ambitions of early studio filmmakers, Brian Jacobson explains that, quote, filmmakers looked on natural landscapes with studio eyes, reimagining what could be termed locations as potential sets that could be mined and extracted to generate cinema's human built virtual worlds. So building on this tradition, the Catch-22 filmmakers approached the Guaymas locale as a resource-rich space to exploit in order to replicate the conditions of the studio world. At the same time, this approach to locations also reflected the ways that the US film industry was changing as conglomerates bought up Hollywood studios in the late 1960s and sold off their backlots, which had long supplied film shoots with reusable sets. In their place, a terraforming approach to working on locations uh, prevailed. Reshaping the environment meant building an Air Force base and runway from the ground up. Since the location was only accessible by boat, the production had to build a road. To help execute this work, Paramount found a willing partner in the mayor of Guaymas, Oscar Ruiz Ameda, who recognized the financial investment the studio could bring to his town. As it turned out, the mayor who had his own contracting company also saw a good business opportunity. One of the tasks of the construction operation was to obtain permission from the owners of, uh, three, of, of three properties where the runway and road would be built. Um, and I've tried to reconstruct these three different properties based on some uh, land access agreements and uh, correspondence and trying to map that information onto this satellite image. Uh, the film's seaside runway would be located on the most picturesque spot, uh, Los Algodones property. 
To the southeast lay El Barriso property where the road would connect the production to hotels in the Guayma subdivision of San Carlos. To join these two tracks, the road would have to pass through the San Carlos property uh, owned by Antonio Bermudez, a prominent politician and industrialist. Bermudez had studied in the United States before running a whiskey operation in Ciudad Juarez during prohibition, then becoming mayor of the border city and eventually taking on the directorship of the state oil firm Pemex. These land negotiations built on the transnational links that were already in place between the United States and Mexico's landholding elites. All three property owners gave the film production permission to build on their land for free. In return, Paramount promised to leave the road, runway, and buildings in good condition to, quote, increase the value of the property, unquote. In the negotiations with Bermudez, production manager Jack Koric assured the industrialist that Paramount would hire as many Mexican workers as possible and spend generously on property construction. The one demand that Paramount made to the owners was to not permit other film companies to shoot on the properties until one year after the release of Catch-22. In the global competition for locations, a premium was put on cinematic spaces where Paramount, uh, which Paramount wanted exclusive control of. So with the land secured, Guaymas Mayor Ruiz Almeida and his contracting company moved forward on the construction of, a of the five mile two lane road and 6,000 foot runway. Dozens of laborers used machetes to clear the land of brush and cacti while preserving mesquite trees that vaguely look like Italian olive trees. Further construction including installing pipelines, telephone lines, electrical lines, and a sewage system. The runway required 10,000 tons of asphalt which were to be produced at a plant in near, nearby Ciudad Obregón. Taking advantage of an economy of scale, Ruiz Almeida arranged to use the same plant to produce asphalt for both the Catch-22 job and also for repaving uh, the Guaymas airport. It was one of several instances when the mayor's support of the production also supported the infrastructure of Guaymas while strengthening his contracting company. The work of constructing the runway was a feat of geology and engineering that required the creation of a surface that could support 12-ton B-25 bombers. For guidance on this project, Paramount turned to the Griffith Company, a contractor based in Orange County that since its founding in 1902 had helped build up Southern California's infrastructure from air bases and airports to dams and highways. District Manager George P. Griffith, a third generation Griffith contractor, helped the studio evaluate Ruiz Almeida's work. During one site visit to Guaymas, Griffith made clear that his role was to protect Paramount's bottom line. When shown that additional work was done beyond what was contracted, such as widening the road to make it safer, Griffith advised that such improvements were of little value to Paramount and to decline payment. When he saw that pipes for stream crossings were installed to avoid flooding, Griffith told the studio, quote, the pipes add to the permanency of the road, but are of no advantage to you since you will be finished before the rainy season comes. Despite Paramount's many assurances that the construction work would enhance the property's values, the studio was primarily concerned with what would be beneficial to the production only during filming, not with the permanence of the area's infrastructure. In the end, construction expenses would greatly add to the film's ballooning budget, which by the end of production ranged from 15 to $20 million uh, in total cost, which was a huge amount of money uh, at that time. While the runway and the surrounding sets fulfilled story requirements, they also met logistical needs. The production could use the airstrip to transport personnel and equipment to and from Los Angeles. Exposed footage was also flown to Los Angeles where it was processed at Paramount's uh, lab to generate dailies. The relatively short distance between the Mexican location and Paramount points to the, ge the geographic advantage of working in Mexico uh, rather than Europe uh, which was the site of many Hollywood productions post in the post-war era. Given the scale of the location shoot, the production had to look to a more extensive transportation network. 
To deliver military vehicles, props, and equipment, Paramount packed 28 freight cars that followed the Southern Pacific Railway from Los Angeles to Nogales, Arizona. The freight cars crossed the border and continued along the Sonora Railway that linked the U.S. borderlands to Guaymas. As the first transborder railway, the Sonoran Line to Guaymas had long been a strategic route for the United States, giving it access to Pacific trade and travel. It also helped make Guaymas into a travel and business destination. A 1940s train car menu from the Southern Pacific Railway, which had purchased the Sonora Line, highlighted Guaymas's Playa de Cortez Hotel, built by the U.S. Railroad Company in 1936. A 1947 edition of Terry's Guide to Mexico, which was basically a, a tourist guide to Mexico, further made the point, quote, since the coming of the rail, rail since the coming of the railway, in particular since the opening of the alluring Playa de Cortez, Guaymas has burgeoned into one of the great tourist resorts of Mexico, unquote. The hotel would end up serving as a production office for Catch-22 and the primary accommodation for the film's stars. Building on this history, Hollywood's cross-border reach was predicated on the United States' growing control of North American trade and transportation in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. With Paramount exporting to Mexico enough military weapons, vehicles, and arms to carry out a small invasion, the studio needed approval from Mexico's Department of Defense. So production manager Jack Corrick wrote to its defense minister, General Marcelino Garcia Barragan, to explain that the production would be using warplanes and arms brought from the United States. The approval eventually arrived in September of 1968 from the Defense Department's General Mario Ballesteros Prieto, on the condition that the Mexican military stay informed of the entry and exit of the equipment and that it not be used more than 10 kilometers from the coast. Now, the support from the National De Defense Department came at a time of civil unrest when Mexican authorities were attempting to control protests against the government in the lead up to the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. As a longtime supporter of the PRI or PRI administration, the CIA and Pentagon were at the time covertly supplying the Mexican government with military weapons and riot training. The protests reached their culmination on October 2nd, when the Mexican armed forces opened fire on an unarmed crowd of protesters, killing hundreds of civilians in what became known as the Tlatelolco massacre. Future investigations would show that Defense Minister Garcia Barragan, whom Paramount sought approval from, signed the order to install snipers on rooftops. National security documents also re revealed that General Ballesteros, who approved Catch-22's military importation, was second in command of the task force created to quell the unrest. He would also ignore orders to keep troops out of the area where the massacre unfolded. In a cruel twist of irony, the United States support of Mexico's military crackdown occurred at the same time that Mexico was supporting Catch-22, an anti-war movie that depicted a fictitious military operation. Even against a troubling backdrop of violence, Hollywood benefited from the US support of a corrupt Mexican regime. With the construction complete and permissions obtained, principal photography commenced in January of 1969. The high-profile production drew a lot of press attention. Paramount put on a press junket in which journalists flew in to visit the set. Uh, many of them, including journalist and future filmmaker Nora Ephron, depicted set life as something of a lark. A bunch of Hollywood comedians stuck in the Sonoran Desert, passing the time by playing practical jokes. At night, the cast and crew hung out in the bar at the Playa de Cortez Hotel and watched film prints flown down from Los Angeles. Later accounts would describe the rampant drug use amongst the cast and crew. Despite what came off as a swashbuckling film shoot in press stories, there were some low points. The producers fired 200 extras from Mexico and the United States when director Mike Nichols felt that the crowded backgrounds made the film looked too much like a conventional Air Force picture. When the newly barren army base achieved, uh, sorry, while the newly 
Baron Army Base achieved the dreamlike limbo the director was after, the firing of Mexican workers undercut the production's dedication to local investment. The infrastructure of the runway and the surrounding buildings provided both logistical support and aesthetic choices during shooting. The filmmakers could create a dynamic interplay between the real and the fabricated. The natural landscape in the background could be used as a visual anchor to the sets and actors in the foreground. The built landscape could enhance a striking set of uh, sense of depth through a recessional sweep across the widescreen frame. And instead of recreating indoor settings on Hollywood sound stages, the production constructed some of its interiors on location. This decision not only made a company move from outside to inside more efficient, but it also allowed for a precise choreography of exteriors and interiors. In one sequence, British cinematographer David Watkin coordinated a real sunset with the dimming light of a hospital room. By blending real and built environments, the filmmakers implemented a studio aesthetic to the location. But on a soundstage, the sets could be torn down and repurposed. Uh, here on the location, these sets were uh, blown to bits, which undermined the production's pledge to leave the buildings intact to enhance the property value. To pull off the film's air raids, the production had to secure dynamite. So Paramount turned to the Mexican branch of the US chemical company, DuPont. With roots in gunpowder manufacturing in the 19th century, DuPont was able to produce the dynamite at its explosives plant in Mexico City. Originally, the plant was part of DuPont's Mexican subsidiary, Compañía Mexicana de Explosivos. But in the 1960s, it was fully absorbed into uh, DuPont's Mexican operations. Once again, the globalization of US businesses proved to be a boon to Hollywood's runaway productions. The Catch-22 crew planned to conduct an additional simulated bomb drop off the coast of Guaymas. But Mexico's uh, Department of Fishing and Industry became concerned that detonating dynamite in the water would impact the ecosystem of Guaymas Bay. The production attempted to convince fishing officials by explaining that this kind of simulation had been done many times along the California coast with no negative results. Not surprisingly, the fishing department denied the request on the grounds that the explosives would be harmful to marine life. What is surprising is that two months later, the second unit film crew received approval to detonate the explosives in a cove up the coast. Perhaps further from the point, port of Guaymas, there was less concern with the explosives effect on the area's lucrative fishing industry. Whatever the reason, the result on screen leaves an indelible image that invokes an insight from writer Nadia Bozak, quote, embedded in every moving image is a complex set of environmental relations, unquote. It's also an image that fulfills the kind of spectacle that Hollywood specialized in. But the appeal of big budget spectacle films was quickly fading in Hollywood, which by the late 1960s was suffering a financial slump with a few hits, with few hits and many failures. Catch-22 would be one of those failures earning mixed reviews and poor box office results. The film had been put into production shortly after the merger of Paramount and the conglomerate uh, Golf and Western, uh, which was a, a company primarily known for auto parts supplies. Golf and Western was moving to streamline the studio by slashing overhead and focusing on lower budgeted films such as Rosemary's Baby and Love Story. Meanwhile, Catch-22, which was shot in three different countries with a large cast and crew, was looking like a relic of the old Hollywood studio system. The folly of Catch-22 seemed to be summed up best by this March 1971 cover of Mad Magazine. The influence of Catch-22 in Mexico was mixed. In the coming years, tourism in Guaymas would grow as a result of local investment in hotels and infrastructure. The press coverage of Catch-22 played a minor role, with the subdivision of San Carlos developing into a community of US immigrants. The greatest Mexican beneficiary of the production was Guaymas mayor, Oscar Ruiz Ameda, who grew rich from Paramount's investments. 
but his life would take a dark turn. One day his body was found in a sports facility in Chihuahua. His death was initially reported as suicide, but rumors swirled about debts owed and corruption scandals. The mystery of his death would be the subject of a 1994 documentary, The Devil Never Sleeps, made by his niece, uh, Chicana filmmaker Lourdes Portillo. It's fitting that Ruiz Almeida's legacy would live on cinematically. That legacy is also intertwined in the vestiges of Catch-22 in Guaymas, which shed light on the repercussions of Hollywood's production in Mexico. If Catch-22's airstrip and buildings lay in ruins, what do we make of Paramount's promise about the benefit for the land and local communities? It should remind us that Hollywood's global production goals were to minimize costs and maximize production values, sometimes at the expense of the long-term advantages to local communities. The movie ruins of Catch-22 are evidence of this industry logic. So that's it. Thanks so much, Daniel, for that fascinating uh, talk. And I now would invite people to uh, share their questions in the chat. We've already got a couple. I'll, uh, I'll ask them to Daniel now. Um, so both of these questions come from Tim Williams, who's a professor of history in the Clark Honors College. So the first question uh, is going back to those initial graphs of the numbers of films that were made outside of the United States. What accounts for the high peak of movies produced in Mexico in 1956? So that's a great question and, and good to see you, Tim. Um, so I'll, I'll, I guess I will uh, preface it by saying, I don't think I figured that out just yet. Um, you know, I think I'm, I'm still, early in, in trying to analyze those numbers. Um, you know, I, I will say that it reflects um, the, the trend lines in sort of the, the greater phenomenon of Hollywood productions abroad, uh, which were uh, starting to peak in the sort of uh, mid to late 1950s. Um, and so, you know, I, I think my hunch is probably it, reflects the overall trend of Hollywood really starting to invest more in, in global productions. Um, and so, and I think, you know, by this time, Hollywood has had about a decade in, in Mexico to kind of figure out how to make these movies. Um, so I think there was some momentum building. I think uh, the trend line starts to go down after that because of some tensions with working in Mexico. Um, there's a lot of accusations of price gouging um, from the Mexican film industry, which I think dissuaded uh, certain Hollywood producers from, from working in, in Mexico. Um, this started to change uh, a little bit uh, later on in the 1960s when places like um, uh, the state of, of Durango was really starting to try to attract Hollywood production, uh, in particular to make uh, Westerns there. Um, and then so uh, the production start to increase um, by the late 1960s. And that continues somewhat into the 70s, even though you know, by the early 70s, Hollywood is, is going through somewhat of a, a, a kind of economic depression and tar starts to um, scale things back. Um, but yeah, I appreciate that question. And I think I, I kind of need more time to uh, analyze some of those numbers. So Tim's uh, second question is, um, he's really interested in the composition of an archive for a project like yours, Daniel. What sources have been most useful or intriguing? So um, great question. And, um, you know, something I'm, I'm thinking about a lot and sort of longing for uh, to get back to the archives. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky to be a historian of, of Hollywood, uh, which has amazing uh, archive resources, um, primarily in, in Los Angeles. Um, probably the place I've done most of my research is at the Margaret Herrick Library, which is run by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, um, which had a production file uh, of Catch-22 uh, because they have the studio records for Paramount. Um, and I was actually surprised that they had so much information because 
as the studios start to break up into the 1960s, it becomes harder and harder to find records for films in the 60s and certainly into the 70s. But I found a good, good amount of, of information. Um, and you know, this is uh, you know, balanced by some other uh, film archives um, at UCLA, USC, uh, the Warner Brothers Archive at USC. Uh, but I've also looked at uh, the National Archives, uh, NARA in, in Maryland uh, and the State Department files, which I think has given me a good sense of the diplomatic relations uh, between uh, Hollywood and the, the Mexican industry. Um, you know, and then that is sort of being balanced by, I think, a kind of range of um, sources uh, like uh, tourist guidebooks and kind of ephemera to give me a sense of the relationship between the United States and, and Mexico during this period. Um, you know, the big gap that I have right now is uh, archive work in Mexico, which I just I haven't been able to do. And I'm, I'm very eager um, to go there, both to visit locations, but also um, look at uh, archival work there. Um, but, you know, my, my sense is that it's going to be hard to find uh, a lot of good uh, industry archive information there. Um, and this is kind of based on trying to do uh, archival research in, in Europe, which doesn't have as robust records of production. Uh, you know, even though, you know, around the world, there's all these great studios, they don't necessarily have great studio records. Um, so that can be harder to find. So, you know, there's always just like a really great kind of paper trail uh, in these US film archives to, to follow. And, you know, I think a lot of the narrative just comes through, you know, looking at, at those uh, US uh, film archive records. Um, but, you know, I think for me, it's really important to get the Mexican perspective on this. So I am eager to go down there. So the next question comes from Michael Allen. Uh, he'd love to hear more about the exemplarity of Guaymas in the history of such productions abroad. Are the negotiations paradigmatic of what occurs at other sites, or is Mexico somehow unique? Michael's thinking, for example, of the extensive location shooting done north of the border in British Columbia. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great question. Um, is it exemplary? I mean, it's. Yeah, it's exemplary. Yeah, because it's 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 bordering the United States, and so it's good that you're 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 raising Canada, which really was not a um, and sort of a primary location, and until I think the 1980s, and and especially in the 1990s, um, when there's a lot of film and TV production uh, going to Canada. Um, so, you know, Mexico, I think, was important because of its geographic proximity, especially to Los Angeles. So, you know, I think that that sort of geographical distance is, is important. You know, I, I think there's a certain geopolitical history that it, it's building on uh, during uh, World War II and the good neighbor policy and the sort of alliance that it's, it's building and a lot of the investment um, that both the government uh, in the United States and the U.S. film industry was was making in terms of uh, the Mexican film industry, and you know they were supporting the Mexican industry in in part so that you know for propagandistic reasons, um, but it was also building this uh, infrastructure that then Hollywood could really exploit uh, after the war. Um, so I think that's that's some of that. Um, Kind of geopolitical context, but you know, in terms of the the locations, um, you know, it, it's it, there are parts of, of Mexico that certainly resemble um, the geography of Southern California, which was one of the reasons why uh, there were, you know, uh, well, in part one of the reasons why the Hollywood industry sort of um, emerged in, in Southern California was the diversity of locations. So, you know, I think the, the space itself was, was really important for Hollywood to be able to uh, carry out um, a range of, of genres, right? And Hollywood is, is a genre industry. Um, you know, you could make war films, you could make treasure hunt movies, uh, and certainly Westerns. Um, and I'd say of, of any genre, it was mostly a place of, of Westerns. But I am interested in kind of, um, you know, the way that Mexico serves as this space um, that kind of Hollywood could um, 
could exploit and extract its resources to carry out its productions. And I think the, the location of, of Guaymas um, served that, that purpose. Yeah, thanks for the question, Mike. So Sangeeta Gokpal is asking to unmute. Can you do that, Sangeeta? Can you unmute yourself? I don't know if you can. See if you can now. I'm unmuted. Go ahead. Um, thank you so much. That was a very, very interesting um, talk, um, Daniel, and um, really rich in terms of the uh, four areas that you are going to examine. I had a very uh, unformed question between, say, the um, which kind of builds off that last point that you were making, which is let's say the economic logic of runaway productions and to what extent that intersects with say the ontological attributes of a location, right? Or the material attributes of a location. So, um, and then the third thing that you point to is how um, uh, that say ecology in Mexico that resembles the Southern Californian one and therefore allows uh, for certain types of genre films to be shot there um, more easily. Um, how that drives, I guess I'm wondering to what extent like that, the, the drive for Runaway is also driven by the changing generic tastes of film history do you know what I mean? So yeah. um, say with the rise of a certain, let's say urban based film, Mexico will no longer do. So I'm just kind of wondering whether there's a way to, um, to, to think about that, right? Like whether the economic logic, the political economy of runaway productions, how it um, combines or articulates with um, genre on the one hand, and what it needs to show and, you know, spaces or ecologies on the other. So that was kind of my very unformed question. Um, and then I, I, I specifically became interested, I don't know if you're familiar with um, a book by Priya Jaikumar called Where Histories Reside. Yeah. So if you are, I'm just kind of wondering like um, to what extent like the kind of, um, work you're doing um, uh, kind of intersects with the challenge that she issues to production culture of a sort of spatial historiography. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for, for those questions, those thoughts. Um, you know, uh, so I, I think if I understood sort of your, your first point, it was in part about sort of the logic of, of runway productions. And, and I think, um, you know, there's always this tension between the need for authenticity, going to a location to take advantage of its, um, you know, authenticity and spectacle, um, which became really important in the post-war era, in part to differentiate um, Hollywood films from uh, television. Um, but I think, you know, one of the reasons why there was a lot of protest against the Hollywood films that were going to Mexico was that it wasn't just about authenticity, it was really about sort of a stand in location, uh, a space that could be kind of reconfigured to stand in for uh, an Italian location in, in the case of uh, Catch-22 or uh, a setting in, in the United States. Um, and so no longer could producers use sort of the authenticity argument as this sort of fig leaf for the real financial reasons uh, of why um, producers were going to, to Mexico. Um, and in terms of sort of the changing tastes of, of, of genre, um, you know, I think the, the, the Western is, is really important here. Um, and, you know, I think we can see, um, you know, the, the development of the Western after World War II becoming kind of a, a serious genre uh, and also a kind of genre of allegory. Um, you know, a, a lot of people, people like uh, Richard Slotkin have talked about how um, the Mexico Western of the 1950s and 1960s is really an allegory 
for the kinds of um, US interventions that um, uh, the United States was making around the world, especially in Southeast Asia. And so I think in that way, sort of the, the, the popularity of the Western is also uh, intersecting with what was going on uh, politically. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, Priya Jaikumar's uh, work, which, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly, um, I think I've read the introduction of, of that book uh, and I've heard one of her, her talks and, and I certainly find her work really inspiring. I, you know, I think I, it really um, resonates with kind of what I'm trying to do in terms of centering space. Um, I mean, I think my work is this balance of sort of production studies, the interest in, in production cultures, but also thinking about um, how that's interacting um, with uh, certain uh, spatial questions, um, you know, about location, um, but also the, the infrastructure of, of space. Um, and, uh, and and the the geopolitics of space. Um, so so yeah, I mean, I, I really kind of appreciate her intervention of you know bringing in the the importance of space into um, sort of the analysis of of production. So I don't know. I hope I hope I tried to address some of the things you talked about. But thanks for that. So we have a question from Mason Kennedy. But Mason, I just want to look and tell me because I think Daniel may have answered this question for you already. Yes, he did. Okay, so the next one, Daniel, um, you mentioned that um, you, there's been extensive scholarship on um, the infrastructure of the distribution of media, but your work is innovative in that it's, it's, it's particularly attending now to the infrastructure of production. And I'm just wondering where you got to at the end of your uh, talk was sort of stepping back and sort of thinking a little lar more largely about that large question about the the um, implications of the infrastructure of production in these runaway productions. And I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity if, if there were, to, to speak a little bit more broadly about that question. And if you're able to at this point in your research, can you, have, can you draw some broader conclusions about the larger implications of in particular, the infrastructure that has remained after these productions? Yeah. Um... I think I'm still thinking through uh, the the issue of, of infrastructure, but you know, and and this was something that came up in in my first book, and I do have a, a chapter about uh, movie infrastructure, and really I talk about infrastructure in terms of uh, the studios, the laboratories, uh, the equipment houses that Hollywood was relying on in Europe. But there is always, for me, uh, some sort of basic questions uh, about infrastructure. For example, like in the post-war era in Europe, were Hollywood filmmakers able to communicate to their studios by phone? So I needed to understand what was that infrastructure like for, for telecommunication? Also, you know, Hollywood was shipping uh, a good amount of equipment overseas. How was that done? You know, what were the, the, the shipping agencies that they were relying on? So I think there's always this question of infrastructure on my mind. And I think it's something I wanted to explore more in this book. And um, for, for me, you know, I, I think that really came about in part just doing this case study of, uh, of um, of Catch-22 when, you know, it's just, it, it's, it, I think it's, it's stuff that's easy to kind of gloss over because it can be really, really dry um, thinking about, you know, the freight cars and the transportation of equipment. But I think, you know, it opens up kind of a larger uh, history of uh, US-Mexico relations uh, in terms of trade, in terms of transportation. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in sort of the remnants of, of this infrastructure. Um, on the one hand, some of it remains, certainly the movie infrastructure. Estudios Churubusco is uh, still the largest and most important studio in Mexico. Um, but in terms of the location work, um, you know, I think I was very struck by the fact that so much of the infrastructure for Catch-22 is, is largely in ruins. Um, and I, I am eager to, to get down there um, to, to look at it in person, um, but you know, 
know, I've had to kind of rely on uh, travel photos that I can find online and, and sort of some satellite imagery on, on Google Earth. Um, but I think it just raises a, a kind of a, a larger issue about sort of the ethics of uh, runaway productions in terms of going to these locations and the kind of environmental impact uh, that it has. Um, and I think really Hollywood needs to be thoughtful about going into a place and having a small footprint. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion right now about sort of the environmental impact of media, both in sort of the scholarship of it, but also within, within the industry. Um, so I think that sort of environmental, some of those ecological concerns connects to, to infrastructure as well. So we've come to the end of our time, Daniel. There are no more questions in the chat. I wanna take this opportunity to thank you so much for sharing this fascinating work and to thank everyone for joining us today. Um, yeah, thank you everyone, really appreciate it for coming. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center and our upcoming sponsored events, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu and we will see you next time. Thanks so much. <laughs>